Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, number 28, from mid-January 2024. Laurel Hill West and the Philadelphia Orchestra. Welcome to the 28th episode of Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, an historic and active cemetery in Bala Kidwood, Pennsylvania. I am Joe Lex, a retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University, volunteer tour guide, and volunteer podcaster. My email is joe at joelex.net. Laurel Hill West opened in 1869 across the river from its sister cemetery, Laurel Hill East, in Philadelphia. It's more than twice as big as Laurel Hill East. It has a totally different feel and a strikingly different population. Like Laurel Hill East, it is open 365 days a year, now from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. There's plenty of parking at the business office just off Belmont Avenue or at the Conservatory and Bell Tower. If you enter from Belmont, follow the road past the second gate with the white line in the middle. Another possibility, just come in while you're walking the Kenwood Trail. Your best bet for public transportation is to take the R6 to Maniunk or a bus to the Wissahickon Transportation Center on Ridge Avenue. Then cross the Schuylkill River on foot. You will be leaving Philadelphia. And walk up Riders Ferry Road to the entrance across from the Pet Cemetery. The 28th episode of Biographical Bites from Bala is for mid-January 2024. Henry Gordon Thunder had a great name for an orchestra leader or a choir master and he seemed to be in line to lead the brand new Philadelphia Orchestra when it was being founded. But he was beat out for the job by Fritz Skeel. Both are interred at Laurel Hill West. William de Pasquale was first violinist and assistant concertmaster of the orchestra for many decades. And he played with his three brothers in the much admired de Pasquale string quartet. He is interred in the South Lawn section of Laurel Hill West. Their stories today on Biographical Bites from Battle Number 28, Laurel Hill West and the Philadelphia Orchestra. Laurel Hill West and the Philadelphia Orchestra. Many musical historians think that Philadelphia falls into five chronological periods. A Quaker, or no music period, 1682 to 1750. An English period, 1750 to 1830. An Italian period, 1830 to the Civil War. A German period, Civil War to 1912. And a modern period, and that starts with Stokowski. Most native Philadelphians can name at least two former leaders of the world-renowned Philadelphia Orchestra. Leopold Stokowski, who was musical director from 1912 to 1938. He is interred in London. And Eugene Ormandy, who served from 1936 to 1980. He is buried in the old Pine Street churchyard at 3rd Street. That would be nearly seven decades under only two conductors. If you, like me, have only been here for 30 or 40 years, you could probably also recognize the names Ricardo Muti, 
Wolfgang Sawalich, Christoph Eschenbach, Charles Detoit, and Yannick Nezit Seguin. Now, the Philadelphia Orchestra is considered one of the traditional Big Five symphony orchestras in the United States, along with the New York Philharmonic, the Boston Symphony, Chicago Symphony, and Cleveland Orchestra. Despite Philadelphia's reputation as being the first in so much of American history, first hospital, first library, first public zoo, first university, first mint, first stock exchange, the Philadelphia Orchestra was a latecomer. It was not established until 1900. This is long after New York, 1842, Boston in 1880, Chicago, 1891. Even Pittsburgh had their own symphony orchestra by 1895. Now, Benjamin Franklin is often claimed as Philadelphia's first amateur musician when he invented the glass harmonica, or musical glasses. It was like the glass harp, which had been around for a few decades. With a glass harp, glasses, crystal glasses, were filled with a predetermined amount of liquid, and then the rim was rubbed with a moistened fingertip. What Franklin did was have the glass blown into a series of bowls, which were mounted horizontally on a spinning axis. The players spun the glasses using a foot treadle and touched the spinning glasses with moistened fingers. This played an ethereal sound that might remind contemporary listeners of a cross between a harpsichord and a theremin. There are a few songs which sound perfect when they're played on the glass harmonica. Much of America's early music was church-based. Christ Church on 2nd Street had its hymns, psalms, and anthems. In September 1728, it bought a new organ for 200 pounds. That's roughly $30,000 today. Franklin himself visited the Moravian congregations at Bethlehem on the Lehigh River specifically to hear their music. And he talked about how much he enjoyed the organ, which the Quakers called a whistle box. But the human voice was free, and musical instruments cost money. Thus, choral music came before orchestral music. Musical societies were founded. The Uranian Society at Third and Market in 1787. Urania was the Greek goddess of astronomy and astrology. The Haydn Society, formed in 1809, that was the year that Papa Haydn died. Within 10 years, it had grown to 130 voices, 80 women and 50 men. Then there was the Harmonic Society, founded in 1802. It met at 6th and Race, the Independent Harmonic Society, which met at 4th and Vine, and the Union Harmonic Society, which met in Norris's Alley. In 1824, the St. Cecilia Society was established on South 4th Street. The first pianoforte manufactured in the colonies came from Philadelphia. And in June of 1810, the first performance in Philadelphia of Handel's Messiah and Haydn's Creation were performed at St. Augustine Church. That's the church that was burnt to the ground several years later during the nativist riots of 1844. The Musical Fund Society was organized in 1820 on 29 February, and 84 members were enrolled. Its founders, 
Benjamin Carr, 1768-1831, Renor Taylor, 1747-1825, George Shetke, 1776-1831. All three of them are buried at St. Peter's Episcopal Church. Also, Benjamin Cross, 1786 to 1857, and the portrait painter Thomas Sully, 1783 to 1872. Sully was an accomplished flute player, and musicians often used Sully's art studio as their practice room. Sully is, of course, interred at Laurel Hill East. In April of 1824, plans were made to build Musical Fund Hall on a lot west of 8th Street on Locust. This William Strickland design building had excellent acoustics and was used for virtually all important music and choral concerts for the next several years. Although some visitors like Charles Dickens and actress Fanny Kemble read at Concert Hall on Chestnut Street along with two other smaller venues, Jane's Hall, Chestnut Street east of 7th, and Sansom Street Hall. But there was no doubt that before we could get symphonic music in Philadelphia, we needed a hall to present it in. And that meant the construction of the Academy of Music, which opened in 1857 at what it's still its location at Broad and Locust. I spoke extensively about architect Napoleon Lebrun in All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories Number 5, Building Philadelphia. An opening ball was given at the Academy on 26 January 1857. The opening performance was Il Travatore on 25 February, which had only been written by Giuseppe Verdi four years earlier. No doubt, at this point, choral music was still preferred over orchestral music. There was an explosion of choral groups again in the 1870s. The Sicilian Society was still around. They had been an outgrowth of the Beethoven Society. The Mendelssohn Club started in 1876. The Orpheus Club for Men was incorporated in 1877, founded by Michael Hurley Cross, 1833-1897. He's buried at Laurel Hill East in Section W. He was the son of Benjamin Cross, one of the founders of the Musical Fun Society. Then came the Philadelphia Music Festival in 1882. The Treble Clef Club and the Eurydice Chorus, a female answer to the Orpheus Club in 1886. The Melody Club in 1893. Numerous German singing societies, many, many more. Still aiming for that symphonic or philharmonic orchestra. They'd only been around for a few hundred years. The term philharmonic comes from the Greek, lover of harmony. German-Austrian composer Joseph Haydn is considered father of the symphony. He spent his career as a court musician for the wealthy Esterhazy family, and he wrote more than a hundred symphonies, works for groups of musicians larger than a chamber orchestra, which was usually limited to about 50 players. As the so-called classical era grew into the Romantic movement, so too did the orchestra grow. To play the complex music of Beethoven or Brahms, more musicians were added. By the late 19th century, and the music of Wagner and Mahler, a symphony orchestra had swelled to more than 100 musicians. A symphony orchestra consists of four groups of related musical instruments, woodwinds, brass, percussion, and strings. There may be a keyboard section. Specific instruments may be added as desired by the composer. For instance, Wagner's Das Rheingold calls for six harps. The first symphony to make an appearance at the Academy was the Boston Symphony in 1884. It was a roaring success, and yet Philadelphia was still not ready or able to assemble its own symphony orchestra. Finally, in the mid-1890s, the son of an Irish-born immigrant from Tipperary with the marvelous name Henry Gordon Thunder came to Philadelphia 
where he put together a group called, appropriately enough, the Thunder Orchestra. Henry's brother, keyboard player William Silvano Thunder, 1876 to 1954, became organist at the Cathedral of Saints Peter and Paul in Philadelphia, also designed by Napoleon Lebrun, the guy who designed the Academy of Music. Through much of the early 20th century, William was Cyrus Curtis's residence organist in Wincote. Although he has little remembered since his death at 92 in 1958, Henry Gordon Thunder was one of the top orchestra conductors in the country by the start of the 20th century. When I look at Philadelphia newspapers from the late 1890s, just as money is being solicited to form a Philadelphia orchestra, the Thunder Orchestra was providing plenty of entertainment for classical music fans. I can find next to nothing about Henry Thunder's early life. I do know that he was Roman Catholic. He spent his first few years in Philadelphia as church organist at St. James Church at 38th and Chestnut. In 1899, Henry Thunder summarized two seasons of the Thunder Orchestra as follows. The series of 15 symphony concerts closing today is the third under my direction. Ten concerts were given during the season of 1897-98 and 20 in 1898-99. In those three years, there have been given 165 different works by 71 composers, including almost every writer of importance from Bach to Wagner. Seven compositions were given for the first time, 22 for the first time in Philadelphia, and 23 were by American composers. As a number of the works were given two or three times during the three seasons, there were 207 numbers played in all at the 45 concerts. When the concerts were projected in November 1897, it was claimed that there was plenty of good orchestral players in Philadelphia to form a symphony orchestra. Though it was not expected, with the limited resources at command, that the concerts could be more than tentative at first. With public appreciation and support, however, it was hoped that it would be possible to hold frequent rehearsals, the greatest essential of all orchestral ensemble and finish. The public, however, did not and has not responded. And the experience of three years justifies little hope that it will do so at a continuance of the present effort. The concerts have been given on the most economical basis possible. The members of the orchestra have played far more to aid me in my attempt and for their own improvement and pleasure than for the small pecuniary return assured them. And each year, a number of disinterested music lovers have subscribed to a guarantee fund. Nevertheless, each of the 45 concerts has been a personal financial loss to me. It is felt, however, that the original claim made has been proven, viz. that from the more than 900 resident orchestral players of Philadelphia, a symphony orchestra of 80 or even 100 players could be chosen that with sufficient rehearsal would need no apology. Signed, Henry Gordon Thunder, 313 South 10th Street. It seemed obvious that despite the habit of hiring German or Austrian conductors for American orchestras, second-generation Irishman Henry Thunder was at the relatively young age of 34 destined to be the first conductor of the soon-to-be-formed Philadelphia Orchestra. But on 14 October 1899, an article in the Wilmington, Delaware Evening Journal published an article that possibly explained his downfall. Headline, Church Organist Deposed for His Marriage to a Divorced Woman. Henry Gordon Thunder, the Philadelphia organist, who is almost as well known in Wilmington as in his native city, has been deposed from his position as organist at St. James R.C. Church, 38th and Chestnut Streets for marrying the divorced wife of William Wigley. 
Father Burke, who is connected with the parish, said last evening, Mr. Thunder is a fine musician, but he outraged the laws of God and man in marrying a divorced woman, and he was therefore deposed. The woman he married is over 20 years his senior. I understand he married her last July in London. It is a pity that he should have taken such a step. We as a church could, of course, not countenance such a proceeding, so he was deposed. Nothing has been learned as to what steps Mr. Thunder will take in the matter. Mrs. Henry Gordon Thunder is the daughter of the late Colonel John W. Forney, one of the best-known newspaper men of his time. As Mary Forney, she was acknowledged as one of Philadelphia's most attractive belles, and her beauty and accomplishments drew many an admirer to the old family home in Washington Square, where her father entertained on a most lavish scale. While Miss Forney was still in her teens, the then brilliant young Philadelphia lawyer William Widely proposed and was accepted. For years they appeared to live happily, most of the time in Germany. But the rumors of family troubles, which reached Philadelphia about three years ago, were quickly followed by the bride obtaining a divorce. Since then, she has resided in Europe, spending most of her time in Germany and England. Henry Thunder met Mrs. Wagley about seven years ago, but it was not until after her separation from Mr. Wagley that Cupid began to play a part in the acquaintance. During the past two years, Mr. Thunder has taken several trips over to the continent to see Mrs. Wagley, and despite the arguments and prayers of his family, married her about two months ago in London. In wedding a divorced woman, Mr. Thunder is excommunicated by the Catholic Church, which, refusing to acknowledge her as his lawful wife, denies him the sacraments of the church and even Christian burial. Now, Mary had married Wigley in 1870. It means Harry was about five years old at the time when his wife married the first time. I did talk about Mrs. Wigley's father, James Forney, at length in a members-only podcast a couple of years ago. Briefly, Forney was originally from Lancaster. He became the namesake for Forney, Texas. He was good friends with James Buchanan. He's been the only person who served both as clerk of the United States House of Representatives and secretary of the United States Senate. Here is just a little excerpt of the script from that podcast you might find interesting. Forney made friends with Tennessee Senator Andrew Johnson, possibly to the latter's detriment. On the night of 3 March, 1864, Johnson headed to Forney's Capitol Hill lodgings for a stag party to celebrate his swearing in the next day as vice president. On the morning of the 4th, Johnson, still shaky from the effects of typhoid fever and the previous evening's party, took a few shots of whiskey as Forney guided him to the Senate chamber to take his oath of office. This might explain why historians consider Johnson's inaugural address more a harangue than a political statement. That was from the earlier podcast. Uh, John Forney died in 1881. That was years before Henry Thunder had even moved to Philadelphia. Uh, Henry Thunder kept a low profile after his excommunication. When he was next quoted in the newspaper that I could find, he was in charge of the music at St. Stephen's Presbyterian Church at 10th and Chestnut. That's now the home to the Lantern Theater Company. Although he was no longer accepted as a practicing Catholic, he had taken umbrage with a new proclamation from Pope Pius X, elected only a few months beforehand. This article is from the Inquirer, dated 7 April 1904, page 3. An enforced return to nothing but Gregorian music in the Catholic Church means a great step backward in music, almost, one might say, A musical crime, declared Henry Gordon Thunder yesterday, when asked to explain in simple terms what variety of music is now demanded by the new pope. As exclusively stated in the Inquirer Monday, 
Archbishop Ryan has already appointed a committee to bring about a reform in the present musical service in Catholic churches here and to prepare a way for the use of nothing but Gregorian music as decided by Rome. Professor Thunder is intimately acquainted with the music of the Catholic Church. Having been for many years in charge of the choir at St. James Church, although at present in charge of the music in a Presbyterian church. Professor Thunder said yesterday, It seems strange that the Catholic Church should now contemplate such a backward step. All of the greatest of the old masters have contributed their best efforts in various masses. The Catholic Church today has a wealth of music specially written for it, such as is possessed by no other church. In fact, almost all denominations are badly handicapped by the fact that their music is also essentially below a first-class standard. But to go back entirely to the Gregorian music, as it is called, seems a big mistake. This music was prepared in the 5th century by Gregory the Great. He did not write it. He gathered together bits of chants used among many nations. At first, the severity of the Gregorian chant might appeal to a stranger. Something akin to it is used in the Greek church in Paris. But after a first hearing, the music becomes wearisome, and after repeat hearings, becomes even trying to listen to. Gregorian music is devoid of the holy trinity of music, harmony, melody, and time, or rhythm. The experiment to be tried by the Catholic Church will be interesting to watch but I scarcely believe a lover of music can be found who hopes that it will be successful. Doubtless the attempt at change will be gradual, as will the dropping of the women singers from the choirs. I see that during the period of transition, an attempt will be made to use the Sicilian chants to prepare worshipers for the change impending. The Sicilina is but a little better than the Gregorian. Slowly, Henry Gordon Thunder worked his way back into the graces of Philadelphia's musical community. He recorded several organ solos for the RCA Victor Company. His career high point may have come in March of 1916. Among the Rittenhouse Square upper crust, word had been building for weeks. People talked excitedly about what they were soon to see and hear. This was to be the biggest, literally and figuratively, musical event in the history of Philadelphia. 34-year-old Leopold Stokowski, third conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra for only four years, would lead his organization in the United States premiere of one of the biggest pieces of music ever written, Gustav Mahler's Symphony No. 8 in E-flat major, the so-called Symphony of a Thousand. In addition to an augmented orchestra of 110 musicians, there were to be double choruses of 400 voices each and a children's choir of 150 voices. The Academy of Music had to build a special stage to accommodate this huge number of people. The risers for the singers went 24 rows deep. One chorus of 400 voices was organized by the Orchestra Association and was trained by Mr. Stokowski. 
while Henry Gordon Thunder assumed responsibility for the second chorus of the same number of voices. This second chorus was made up of members of the Choral Society of Philadelphia, the Mendelssohn Club, and the Fortnightly Club. Schakowsky had planned this event for years. He was present at the first performance of the Eighth Symphony in Munich on 12 September 1910. That was under the direction of the composer. He had also attended many of the rehearsals. Stokowski was so deeply impressed that he likened his sensations to those which he believes may have been experienced by the first white man when he looked for the first time upon Niagara. Something of the same feeling of awe, the same flashing insight into infinity, I felt before this mighty work of Mahler." I talked about this concert at length in Biographical Bites from Ballot Number 7, a podcast about Dr. Francis X. Durkham and his sister Susanna, who was chosen by Stokowski to sing the role of Maria Egyptica. Check that episode out if you're interested in learning more. Although most of the praise at the time went to Stokowski, Thunder was definitely recognized as the right-hand man throughout the process. Twenty years later, Henry was in the Enquirer again, this time as the founder and conductor of the Choral Society of Philadelphia as it started its 42nd season in the auditorium at the Drexel Institute, 32nd and Chestnut. Henry's brother, William Silvano Thunder, for many years the organist at the Cathedral of Saints Peter and Paul, supplied the singers with organ accompaniment. In 1930, Thunder received an honorary degree in music from the University of Pennsylvania. Mary Forney Thunder died at age 85 in 1934. She was buried in the Forney family plot, the river section of Laurel Hill West. Harry outlived her by 20 years. He was 92 when he died in March of 1958. His obituary mentions how he conducted the Philadelphia Choral Society for 50 years and the Fortnightly Club for 34 years, along with choral societies in Lansdowne, Camden, and Wayne, the Snellenberg Chorus, the Phoenixville Choir, the Schubert Choir of York. The gravestone is quite small. It's tilted backwards. It's facing away from the road. To find it, you have to locate the Forney plot in the river section. There's a decent-sized obelisk. But to the right of it is a stone which says, Mary Forney died January 12, 1934, wife of Henry Gordon Thunder. There are also a couple of bars of music carved on the stone. Henry Thunder does not have a separate stone, nor does his brother, William Sylvanus Thunder, who's also buried in the Forney plot. Henry Gordon Thunder is one of those lost names of Philadelphia music. As you will soon hear, his orchestra fell apart when most of its members were recruited to become the core of the new Philadelphia Orchestra. I think a bust in the Academy of Music should be the least we could do to remember his name and memory. Maybe, just maybe, we could even get him a plaque on the Walk of Fame of the Avenue of the Arts. Part 2, Johann Friedrich Ludwig Fritz Schiel, 1852-1907. As I mentioned earlier, Philadelphia music went through a Germanic period from the end of the Civil War until the emergence of Leopold Stokowski in 1912, who, despite his name, was born in England. During the Centennial Exposition of 1876, Richard Wagner was commissioned to write a Grand Centennial Inaugural March, for which he was paid the massive sum of $5,000. It's equivalent to about $145,000 today. Wagner delivered a 12-minute 
piece of trash, which is rarely mentioned today. It's probable that he knew that he'd created a stinker because he insisted that his $5,000 be deposited with his banker before he would release the music. Wagner tried to sugarcoat the music by enclosing a letter which said, I have given my friends to understand that in some of the more delicate portions of the composition, I picture to myself the beautiful and vivacious women of America in their festival attire. End quote. You can find a copy of the Grand Centennial Inaugural March by Wagner on YouTube. The comments, especially from self-proclaimed Wagnerian scholars, are a real treat to read. In 1893, the Philadelphia Symphony Society was organized for the purpose of, quote, the cultivation of the highest order of orchestral work and the fostering of all matters tending to promote the cause of music, end quote. Its first leader was Dr. William Wallace Gilchrist, professor of music at Penn and founder of the Mendelssohn Club in 1875, which he conducted for 40 years. After Henry Thunder's excommunication, and possibly because of his Irish background, his name fell by the wayside as discussions again grew about how Philadelphia should acquire its own permanent professional symphonic orchestra. In July 1899, the wife of bandmaster Frederick N. Innes went to a concert at Woodside Park to hear the Philadelphia Symphony Society Orchestra led by the 47-year-old German-born Johann Friedrich Ludwig Fritz Skiel. She was so impressed with the performance that she grabbed copies of the program, brought them back, and distributed them to other members of the band formation committee. Fritz Schiel, S-C-H-E-E-L, was born in Lübeck, Germany in 1852, and like his father and grandfather, became a music conductor. He studied locally. By the age of 10, he was playing first violin in the Lübeck Orchestra. He also made himself proficient on horn, trumpet, trombone, and tuba before he was 12 years old. When he was 17, he'd become concertmaster and conductor at Bremerhaven, where he was remembered for conducting the orchestra doing Meyerbeer's Robert de Diablo from memory since the score had gone missing or mislaid. And while he was studying in Europe, he was colleague of von Bülow, Brahms, Joachim, Sarasate, and others. After working with several more German orchestras, Skiel left his wife and adult children in Munich and emigrated to the United States in early 1893 to conduct concerts in New York City. He was hired to conduct the Trocadero Orchestra at the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago. Later, he assembled a symphony orchestra in San Francisco. The job at Woodside Park that summer was more or less just to put food on the table. Philadelphia Orchestra Executive Committee member Dr. Edward I. Keffer, 1862-1933, buried at Laurel Hill West Marion section, paid a visit to Woodside Park and was delighted to find that Skeel had planned a Wagner night, a Beethoven night, a symphony night. Now this gave... Keffer the information he needed. Not only was Fritz Skiel a more than competent orchestra conductor, he also had the organizational skills to put such a unit as an orchestra together. Skiel was approached with a generous offer to remain in Philadelphia. He would start at $3,000 a year. He attended as many local musical programs as he could and he kept careful notes about whom he should recruit for his new Philadelphia orchestra. In 1900, the Philadelphia Symphony Society disbanded and sold to the executive committee of the Philadelphia Orchestra its library, a set of kettle drums, and its music desks. Fritz Skeel now led an orchestra composed entirely of professional Philadelphia musicians, which he had recruited from the Musical Fund Society, the Germania Orchestra, the Thunder Orchestra, and the Philadelphia Symphony Society. 
Skeel was known for his concerts of military music. One of his trademarks was military attire, military bearing. He had a stiff handlebar mustache. He conducted rehearsals in German and played mostly German music. Despite the general air of a martinet, he was actually a painfully shy man. After intense rehearsals, Skeel test drove his new band with a series of concerts in the spring of 1899 for the benefit of the families of soldiers and sailors disabled in the Philippines during the Spanish-American War. They were a smashing success and raised more than $10,000, but musicians had played at much less than union rates for 36 rehearsals and two performances, and Mr. Skeel took no additional money. Finally, 16 November 1900, at the Academy of Music, Fritz Schiel raised his baton over what was now the permanent Philadelphia Orchestra. Five concerts were given during the first season, after which Schiel fired half the musicians and replaced them with European players. Fourteen more concerts were given, 1901-1902, and 14 the next season with the same number of public rehearsals. By the 1903-04 season, the schedule called for 30 performances locally and many more in the region. The Philadelphia Orchestra was making a name for itself. Now, along the way, Skeel had married and had several children who were grown by the time he reached the United States. All but one lived in Munich. His daughter, Marguerite, was his constant companion in the United States. Fritz Skeel was working himself to death over the Philadelphia Orchestra. Money had become less of an issue since that part of the operation had been taken over by a women's committee run by the inexhaustible Frances Ann Wister, whom I talked about in All Bones Considered number 36, three remarkable Wister sisters. In addition to saving the orchestra, Wister was responsible for rescuing Society Hill, Elfrith's Alley, Grumblethorpe, the Hill Physic House, and much more of historic Philadelphia. She is interred at Laurel Hill East. On Saturday, 9 February 1907, the Philadelphia Inquirer wrote, Worn to a nervous wreck by ceaseless work, Fritz Skeel, famous leader of the Philadelphia Orchestra, completely collapsed before the Beethoven concert on Thursday night. When the orchestra's executive committee took the baton out of his hands, his face was wet with tears. He had worked for several weeks on his own interpretation of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, and he wanted it to be perfect. But for three weeks, he had not been able to sleep a wink. In the Odd Fellows Temple, each morning he rehearsed one group of players. In the afternoon, another group of players. In the evenings, the entire orchestra... At his meals, he arranged the sugar bowl so it would keep the score of some symphony or another in an upright position so he could study while eating. And he was still attending his duties rehearsing the Orphesis and Eurydice clubs. Two days later, on 11 February 1907, the newspaper flat out said that Fritz Skeel had a nervous breakdown and that he's under the attendance of an Atlantic City physician. For one thing, he was eager to push through his idea of playing five symphonies in one day. A quote, Overwork and worry over the disappearance and drowning of a member of his orchestra, Frank B. Morton, a violinist, for whom he had a special liking, have overtaxed his nerves to such a degree that the least sound of music drives him into a state of hysterical excitement. Just as a side note, Frank B. Morton was his first violinist. His body was found in the Delaware River in later February, and his death was declared accidental. Skeels seemed to show some improvement. He was moved to a private asylum in Philadelphia that was run by, of course, Dr. Francis X. Durkham, whom I mentioned earlier. But on March 1st, he was reported to seriously ill Again, he rallied until March 12th, and then he relapsed again 
and Durkham started warning that the end was near. When Skeel died the next day, the Philadelphia Inquirer said this about him. It is not too much to say that but for Fritz Skeel, the Philadelphia Orchestra of today would not have been brought into existence. The movement from which the orchestra proceeded was inspired by the opportunity which his presence in Philadelphia furnished. There can be no great orchestra without a great conductor, and the latter is hard to find. Here was the man for whom the movement had been waiting, the man who combined all the qualities necessary to the realization of the long-debated project. May the orchestra long remain his monument. On Sunday, St. Patrick's Day of 1907, the Inquirer noted, with the score of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony and his baton lying beside him in the casket, all that was mortal of Fritz Skeel, the great musician and conductor, was buried yesterday afternoon in West Laurel Hill Cemetery. It was one of the most impressive public funerals ever held in this city. Long before the last services at 2 o'clock at the Lutheran Church of the Holy Communion, Chestnut above 21st, hundreds of prominent citizens and music lovers crowded the house of worship, filling every pew and overflowing the aisles to take a last farewell of the man and master whose untiring devotion and labor placed the Philadelphia Orchestra in the forefront of musical organizations. The Philadelphia Orchestra and the Orpheus Club were seated on either side of the chancel. Between lay the body of Fritz Skeel. The article tells more of the service and then moves to the cemetery. Not at the grave even did music desert him without a last sad word. Four members of the Philadelphia Orchestra, a quartet of French horns, follow the little band of mourners to West Laurel Hill Cemetery, and upon the soft spring-like air, the strains of Ave Verum of Mozart floated richly and were gone. is interred in the Moreland section. Not long after his death, there was a tribute poem published in one of the trade journals. Fritz Skeel, a tribute. He gave his life to music, gave, for love not higher, himself denying, his body rests or wearied in the grave, but music lives and gives him life undying. In the deep silence may he hear such harmonies as he could wake and oh, may some faint accents reach his ear from the great city's heart that sorrows for his sake. I think with the 125th anniversary of the Philadelphia Orchestra coming next year, 2025, it might be a good time for Fritz Skeel to get his plaque on the Walk of Fame somewhere outside the Academy. William D. Pasquale, 1933-2012. As usual, once I started investigating, I found out that I had more that I could bargain for. There are several other musicians and singers that I could talk about. Cello player Rudolf Hennig is interred at Laurel Hill West in the Lansdowne section. He was the subject of an 1896 painting by Thomas Aikens that you can find at PAFA. And that reminds me, on 9 April of 2024, 6.30 p.m., I'm going to be doing a virtual tour via Zoom of Thomas Aiken's connections at Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West. It's a pay-what-you-wish tour, but you have to RSVP in order to get the link. I will remind you of that again before it comes up. For now, you might want to put it on your calendar, though. 9th of April at 6.30 p.m., virtual tour. Johann Grola, 1880-1956, Rosemont section, was a violinist for the orchestra. 
Maurice Kaplow, 1930-2020. Chesed Shalemet was violist with the Philadelphia Orchestra and conductor for the Pennsylvania Ballet. Oscar Schwar, 1875-1946, Sanctuary of Remembrance, B1, was a timpanist. In 1963, two years after he stepped down as bass player for the Philadelphia Orchestra, Max Strassenberger fell off the stage of the Academy while performing with the Lyric Opera Company Orchestra and died of a head injury. And worth of a mention, although he was not a Philadelphian and he did not play in the orchestra, there is Timothy Adamowski, famed violinist, string trio leader, first conductor of the Boston Pops Orchestra. Timothy ended up buried at Laurel Hill West after he married the daughter of Dr. William Pancoast. Pancoast was the first man known to have performed human artificial insemination. I talked about him in All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, number 46, Fathers of American Medicine, part three, Some Ethical Dilemmas. And while researching this podcast, I encountered a long article about German-born choir master Jürgen Clay and his dominance of choral music in Philadelphia in the late 19th and early 20th century. Clay's remains, that's K-L-E-E, are in a beautiful mausoleum in the Philadelphia section of Laurel Hill West that has trumpeting angels carved beside the doors and a stained glass that carries on the theme of his love for music. I am tentatively planning a future podcast about the German Song Societies and the Sangerfests of Philadelphia. But the last person I want to mention today is very contemporary. William de Pasquale. He's interred in the South Lawn section. For many years, he was the first violinist and assistant concertmaster with the Philadelphia Orchestra. His headstone has a musical staff on it, although the song that is notated is essentially musical clip art. It really doesn't play anything. For someone who spent so many decades as one of the regular faces of the Philadelphia Orchestra, there is surprisingly little about De Pasquale online. I contacted his daughter, Francesca. She's also a violinist. She's on staff at Oberlin University. She said, if you Google William De Pasquale violin, there are several articles by the Philadelphia Inquirer, Strad Magazine, etc. that give an overview. Well, believe me, I tried. Uh, most of what I found was published posthumously, but I did get enough information on him. He was born in Philadelphia in 1933. William De Pasquale first studied violin at seven with his father, Oresta, at home in Germantown. William had three brothers, all of whom became professional musicians. Their father wanted nothing more than for all of his sons to one day become members of the Philadelphia Orchestra. And while he was in his teens, William trained at the Curtis Institute of Music with revered pedagogue Veda Reynolds before he left for the U.S. Naval Band. Now, this would have been after the Second World War. He also studied with Samuel Kissel in New York. He performed for several years at the Berkshire Music Center, with one year at the Marlboro Festival in Vermont. In 1958, he went on to Salzburg on a Fulbright scholarship for a year of study and concertizing. And when he came back stateside, he landed the concertmaster job at the New Orleans Philharmonic, while he also served as concertmaster and violin soloist with the St. Louis Sinfonietta. His debut of a soloist with the Philadelphia Orchestra came as a student audition winner under the baton of Eugene Ormandy. William returned to Philadelphia for good in 1963 in a merger of his professional and personal lives. He and then-wife Barbara Sordien, also a violinist, may have been the first husband and wife to arrive in the orchestra together. He found his second wife, violinist Julia Jansen, in the orchestra, and his third wife and widow, Gloria, was a member of the orchestra's cello section. William's older brother, Francis, had joined the Philadelphia Orchestra's cello section in 1943. 
Another older brother, Joseph, joined him at Philadelphia in 1964 after he had spent 17 years as chief violist with the Boston Symphony, where he personally raised the standard of viola playing so dramatically that it literally remade the instrument's image. In 1966, William was made an associate concertmaster, and he made numerous solo appearances with the Philadelphia Orchestra. In 1994, he was appointed acting concertmaster, and in 1995 was appointed second co-concertmaster. The same year, he was awarded the Hartman Kuhn Award, an annual honor presented in the name of arts patron C. Hartman Kuhn, who was a member of the board of directors of the Philadelphia Orchestra for many years. De Pasquale also taught violin at the Esther Boyer College of Music at Temple University, and he served as string coach for the Philadelphia Youth Orchestra. Despite all of these accolades and accomplishments, he never made the position of concertmaster. William was not a virtuosic soloist, but he made easy work of tricky, exposed solos, such as Strauss's last four songs and Rimsky-Korsakoff's Scheherazade. This is not De Pasquale playing the violin solo from Scheherazade. This is somebody else that I found on YouTube. He played chamber music with Yo-Yo Ma and brought his, quote, compellingly ardent temperament, end quote, to the Walton Violin Concerto. As the orchestra's ambassador on tour, he led master classes with a gentle air of authority while he played examples on his modern Italian instrument. My favorite William De Pasquale anecdote occurred at the Academy of Music and was covered in a review from the Inquirer on 17 April 1999. The personal drama came in the Korngold Violin Concerto, but the musical drama in the Shostakovich Symphony No. 10 overwhelmed even that. The Philadelphia Orchestra, playing a rare concert under the baton of Gerard Schwartz, gave its audience a double dose of involvement. In the Korngold, violinist Elmar Oliveira was flying through the cascades of notes when he broke a string. Without pause, he gave his violin to William de Pasquale and picked up the concertmasters, scarcely missing a note. While de Pasquale was restringing the Guarneri del Gesù, Oliveira was flashing through some of the work's flaming sections. The sounds slightly but intriguingly different the violinist eyeing the restringing process closely. His own instrument restrung and retuned, he traded again with De Pasquale and finished with it. The decision not to stop was an artistic one, for the work had already taken on shape and momentum. The acrobatics are continuing without breaking tempo, gave the listeners an insight into the emotion of performance and the determination to complete an imagined idea. End quote. Mr. De Pasquale repeated this service a few years later for another string-busting violinist, Nadja Salerno Sonnenberg. But William De Pasquale was a good deal more than merely a sturdy attendant to others. He was a frequent soloist himself, standing in front of the ensemble in Bartok's Second Violin Concerto, Elgar's Violin Concerto in B minor, the Korngold Concerto, the Four Seasons of Vivaldi. Of a 1983 performance with the orchestra of Brooks Lugubrious In Memoriam, an inquirer critic wondered whether any player could bring the work to life and then answered, 
De Pasquale played it with considerable fervor and dedication and a throbbing dark tone. On some nights, William and Brother Joseph, the orchestra's longtime principal violist, could be heard playing the Mozart Sinfonia Concertante or Arthur Benjamin's Romantic Fantasy together. Their brother Robert was a first stand second violinist. Another brother, Francis, spent years as a cellist in the orchestra until his untimely death in 1972. The brothers and others in various combinations over the years formed the De Pasquale String Quartet. Even if De Pasquale's positions with the orchestra never included concertmaster, he often performed the duties of one, notably after Norman Carroll retired in 1994, but before the orchestra had settled on a successor. Whatever else he felt as a short list of candidates came through, Mr. De Pasquale would say publicly only that he hoped the choice would be for the good of the orchestra. I've gone through the gamut of emotional highs and lows during this temporary period, he said. There have been many concerts where emergencies meant calling on me to play the orchestral solos without rehearsals. I just love to play music, and as the downbeat comes, we all forget about who, what, where, and just concentrate on making music. The dreams of the Germantown violinist Arresta de Pasquale came true on the day all four of his sons became members of the Philadelphia Orchestra. There is a short documentary on YouTube about the brothers that includes interviews with William. And the film includes the four brothers playing together. William de Pasquale died of complications from prostate cancer at 78 years old in 2012. He was considered one of the foremost orchestral violinists in the world. He was survived by his third wife, Gloria, a cellist in the Philadelphia Orchestra, their daughter Francesca, a violinist, and two of his brothers. He's interred in the South Lawn section of Laurel Hill West. Very little of his music is available commercially, although there is some on YouTube. February 2024 episode of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories number 59, is for Black History Month. Sarah A. Anderson spent 17 years in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. Winnie Harris was a civic activist who was responsible for planting more than a thousand trees in the city before her untimely murder in 2017. Flora DeVita Johnson-Reed was the Dean of Graduate Studies at Cheney University for many years. And Samuel Evans was considered the godfather of the Philadelphia Civil Rights Movement until his death at age 105. In Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, episode number 29 for mid-February, I will talk about Laurel Hill West as the final resting place for members of the Philadelphia-based anarcho-primitivist group, MOVE. I remind you, there are self-guided tours available for both cemeteries. For Laurel Hill East, download the app. For Laurel Hill West, you can find it with your podcasts. 
It's a walkthrough from the Kinwood Trail entrance to the Pencoid exit and another in the opposite direction. If you do the round trip, it's about two hours of stopping at stones, peeping in mausoleums, and hearing about nearly 100 people who helped make Philadelphia what it is today. All Bones Considered and Biographical Bites from Bala are mostly research written, narrated, and produced by me, Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University, volunteer tour guide, and volunteer podcaster for both cemeteries. You can reach me through my email, joe at joelex.net. The theme song, Names at Peace, is by local artist James Harrell. Maybe, just maybe, I will see you on a tour. Stay safe, stay well. The bibliography follows. So what are my references for this? Lots of really good stuff. Um, Annals of Music in Philadelphia and History of the Musical Fund Society from its organization in 1820 to the year 1858, compiled by Louis C. Madeira who is interred at Laurel Hill East, of course. He's in the south section. This is by Joshua Lippincott Company. Lippincott, of course, is interred at Laurel Hill East also. Philadelphia. And um, lots of good information about the Musical Fun Society. Innovation and Selection, Symphony Orchestras in the Construction of the Musical Canon in the United States, 1879 to 1959. Author on that is Pierre-Antoine Kremp. Source, Social Forces, March 2010, Volume 88, Number 3, pages 1052 to 1082. The Philadelphia Orchestra and Robin Hood Dell, author... Samuel R. Rosenbaum. The source was Tempo Magazine, number 8, pages 10 through 12. And then 25 years of the Philadelphia Orchestra, 1900 to 1925. This is by Francis Ann Wister, who is interred at Laurel Hill East, published under the auspices of the Women's Committee for the Philadelphia Orchestra, copyright 1925. For Henry Gordon Thunder, I got most of the material out of the newspapers. The article about his divorce and excommunication was in the Evening Journal, Wilmington, Delaware, 14 October 1899. That was on page one. The word on the Mahler Symphony came from the Philadelphia Inquirer, dated 3 March 1916, page 10. Most of the information about Fritz Skeel came from Francis Ann Wister's book, but also some from newspapers after 1900. I wish I could have given you more on William de Pasquale. Um, not that much information, which surprised me, because he really was a big deal with the Philadelphia Orchestra for many, many years. And I did find material that stretches from 1971 to 2016. But nothing that told me that much about his upbringing and about his family. So that is it for mid-January of 2024. I hope you enjoyed this biographical bites from Bala. Get in touch with me, joe at joelex.net. Leave a review, please, at Apple Podcasts. Leave a five-star rating and then write a review. Every little bit helps, I promise you. This is all a very expensive hobby that I do, I promise you. I do not make a penny from this, but I sure do have a lot of fun doing it. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, stay well. <laughs>